Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 18. Commander of the Faithful. History of Portugal is an independent podcast supported by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And where you will be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to David B for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And whether you're a member or not, you can still help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, and co-workers. And please give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. The more reviews we get, the more visible the show will become, and the more people will be able to find it. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at historyofportugalpod at gmail.com. Last episode, we continued the story of the Northern Iberian Kingdoms with the accompanying chaos of civil war that the contested successions generated. This episode, we will do a deep dive into the long and illustrious reign of Abdelrahman III and follow his tenacious plan to drag Al-Andalus from its lowest depths to its highest reaches. And now... Let's get started. Abdelrahman III inherited the throne of the Umayyad Emirate from his grandfather, the Emir Abdallah, on the 16th of October 912. To an outside observer, he may not have seemed like a viable candidate, since his father Muhammad had been executed by his grandfather almost immediately after his birth. Additionally, he had two surviving paternal uncles, who were both experienced military and political leaders. But Abdallah seems to have made the decision early on to groom and educate his grandson to succeed him to the throne. 
Despite Abdullah's seeming psychosis, his judgment of his young grandson as being the best candidate to succeed him was spot on. Abdullahman turned out not to be a great military general, nor did he turn out to be a scholarly religious leader. But rather, he was a thoughtful, intelligent, and determined politician who seems to have analyzed the complex cultural and political mechanics of Al-Andalus and understood it better than most. As I'm sure you remember, by this point, the authority of the Emir hardly extended beyond Cordoba and its surrounding areas. The bureaucratic apparatus was really small in comparison to previous years, since there was barely any territory to administer. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes back, the military was hardly more than a warband sustaining itself through its annual cannibalistic raiding expeditions. It's clear that the Emir had thought long and hard about how to tackle these two enormous problems. Because once he took power, he immediately went to work making moves and setting policies. Upon his ascension, the new Emir promptly set about initiating careful campaigns against all of those warlords and magnates that took advantage of the kingdom's weakness. And as was to become his characteristic style, these campaigns were methodical and well planned out. He had a particular knack for organizing systematic sieges, utilizing blockades, and economic warfare by destroying cash crops, for example. He usually didn't stay to see the sieges through, typically leaving trusted men in charge of the operation. This competent and patient style essentially meant that there was no stronghold in Al-Andalus that he couldn't take. But siege warfare wasn't the only tool in his toolbox. The Emir also used generous terms of surrender to persuade his enemies not only not to fight him, but to join him. Those who submitted were treated with respect, moved to Cordoba and usually given positions in either the military or the administration keeping his potential enemies nice and close where he could keep tabs on them. This mix of implacable sieges and generous terms of surrender honestly reminds me a lot of how the ancient Romans operated in their wars of conquest. In the end, it was much cheaper to bring people into the fold by offering the ruling aristocracy money and position into the existing power structure, rather than to beat down everyone's door. It worked well for the Romans, and it served Abdallahman quite well too. In the winter of 912-913, he launched successful expeditions that recovered both Calatrava and Esiha, the latter located in the periphery of the rebel Ibn Hafsun's territory. Early the next summer, he led a three-month expedition across a large swath of his territory. All along the way, Numerous warlords surrendered their strongholds and pledged their loyalty to him. Before the end of the year, he got some interesting news from Seville. The old ruler that we talked about in a previous episode, Ibn al-Hajjaj, had died right before Abdullahman's ascension. Consequently, his son Muhammad and his nephew Ahmad began feuding over who would inherit control over his domains. Muhammad then reached out to the emir to ask for his assistance 
in securing Seville and its surrounding areas under his leadership. But much to his and Ahmad's disappointment, in December of 913, the emir simply sent one of his generals to the city and took it back for himself. Seville was now back under Umayyad rule. Then, in May 914, the emir launched an expedition south, straight to Malaga and then west along the coast, to cut off Ibn Hafsun's links to North Africa, and then through Sidonia and Carmona and back to Cordoba. Only two years after his ascension, Abdelrahman III had reclaimed all the major population centers of the kingdom, as well as encircling Ibn Hafsun in the mountains of Bobastro. So it truly seemed like that rebellion was finally coming to an end. During the siege of Bobastro, a major famine hit Al-Andalus, delaying the planned assault on the fortress. And while all this was going on, in September of 917, Umar bin Hafsun, the rebel leader that had caused so many problems for the emirate, died of natural causes. But this wasn't the end of the rebellion. Ibn Hafsun's four sons continued their father's dream of independence. However, like most cults of personality, once the charismatic leader was gone, the rebels lost all their steam and were put on the defensive. But it still required a patient and systematic approach to take down their strongholds. It took another 10 years until the last surviving son of Ibn Hafsun surrendered and Bobastro was finally retaken. It had been 50 years since Ibn Hafsun had first launched his rebellion. And for those five decades, the financial and military strength of the emirate had been drained by it. This was an enormous triumph. Poems were commissioned to honor Abdelrahman, and the ever-PR-minded ruler made sure that a grandiose letter announcing his victory was sent all across Al-Andalus. All this military success had the effect of stabilizing the south which in turn significantly increased the tax revenue. But it also meant that there was now a need to grow the civil and military branches of the government, since now there was actually, you know, things to administer. To begin with the civil service, the emir made use of what we can call administrator-class dynasties. These were families that held all the most important positions of the government, such as secretaries, treasurers, city administrators, etc. It's from this class that the highest ranks of the government were drawn from, where they usually held the general purpose title of vizier. This was a highly literate, immensely cultured group that was exceedingly influential and nepotistic, as these posts were usually passed down from father to son, and uncles, brothers, and cousins were typically employed in the administration as well. Along with the aristocratic element of the administration, we have another class of administrators and military men that came into the picture. And that is slaves, known in Arabic as Sakaliba. Sakaliba is a word that was typically applied to Slavic Eastern European slaves though it loosely applied to slaves from Northern Europe too. You see, 
The larger Mediterranean world was divided by religious affiliation, and anyone who wasn't of the same religion as you were typically seen as fair game for enslavement. At this time, you had Scandinavian Northmen or Vikings trolling up and down the rivers of Eastern Europe, capturing Slavic pagans and selling them to Western Christians and to the wider Eastern Muslim world. The Franks were doing the same thing, as they were always campaigning in the East against pagan populations, taking prisoners and exporting them to Iberia. Some of these unfortunate people were castrated, and these eunuchs were used for both domestic and administrative functions by the Caliph. But it might surprise you that many of these slaves rose up to important senior military positions. They became the trusted military commanders of the Emir, since they were competent career military men who owed their positions entirely to the Emir. Thus, ensuring a hard-to-break loyalty to their master. But this promotion of slaves to high-ranking military posts definitely did not sit well with the upper aristocracy or the extended Umayyad family, who viewed such posts as theirs by right. But we'll burn that bridge when we get there. The stabilization of the South and the further professionalization of the armed forces enabled the Emir to launch his first expeditions against the Christian North. As I mentioned last episode, in the previous reign, the Christian nobility in the western half of the peninsula had an appetite for expansion, and so pushed up to the Dodo River. Leon had recently become the capital, and Zamora developed into an important outpost. And not only were the Christians expanding their territory, they were getting bolder and more audacious with their raids. Like in 913, when Ordoño II raided way to the south and brutally sacked the future Portuguese city of Avura, allegedly killing the garrison and taking 4,000 women and children into slavery. And just to give you a sense of the distance, Avura is 348 miles or 560 kilometers away from the city of Leon. All of this was, of course, an unacceptable state of affairs for Abdelrahman, but his first foray into showing the northerners that there was a new sheriff in town didn't go so well. The veteran military commander I mentioned in episode 15, Ahmad bin Abdi Abda, was killed and his troops routed in an expedition at San Esteban de Gormaz in September of 917. And this defeat must have really rankled the emir, because in 920, he decided to avenge this defeat, leading the army in person for the first time. He struck north through Toledo, where the still independent ruler reaffirmed his loyalty to the emir. He then headed over the mountains, where he took San Esteban de Gormaz and sacked the deserted city of Clunia. He subsequently went northeast to the upper Douro, to the city of Tudela. While in the upper march, he assembled even more troops, then headed north to strike at the heart of Navarre. In July 920, he defeated a combined Basque-Leonese alliance in a location between Pamplona and Estella. Now, 
that he had successfully demonstrated to the Christians that there definitely was a new sheriff in town, the emir returned to Cordoba. Four years later, in 924, the emir decided to enact a bold plan of his own, to attack the city of Pamplona. He took the route up through the east coast, reining in any of the rebel lords he ran across at Lorca and Murcia up to the Ebro Valley. He then began a methodical campaign of destruction on the southern fortresses which protected Pamplona. Upon hearing that a massive Umayyad army was on its way to the capital, the panicked population fled to the hills, which was the smart thing to do because once the Umayyads arrived in Pamplona, it was thoroughly sacked, the cathedral burnt, and the city left a smoldering ruin. Though this was a massive display of power, that was all it was. The Umayyads didn't occupy any new territory. After the Umayyad withdrawal, the Basques came down from the hills of their ancestors and rebuilt their ruined city. By the year 929, Abdullah III had finally restored Umayyad power to the former peak and glory it had enjoyed under his great-grandfather, Abdullah II. The emir had successfully brought to a close the 50-year rebellion of Ibn Hafsun, along with recapturing all the myriad towns and cities and fortresses that had declared independence in the reign of his grandfather, Abdallah. And lastly, he showed himself to be the unquestioned ruler of the Muslims of Al-Andalus by leading raids against the infidel in the north. The culmination of all these achievements was the decision of the emir to take the title of Commander of the Faithful, or Caliph, and the regnal title of Al-Nasir, meaning the victorious. And to further emphasize the point, the Caliph made sure to collect the heads of his slaughtered enemies and had them brought to Cordoba so that the people could see for themselves the proof of their ruler's military might, along with having accounts of his victories read out in the mosques. So you may be asking yourself, why only do this now? Why didn't any of the previous emirs take the title of caliph? Well, even though the Umayyads of Al-Andalus were themselves descendants of the Umayyad caliphs of Damascus, they most likely never took over the title because, up until recently, there had only ever been one caliph at a time. When the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads a couple of centuries back, they took over the title. So it would have been seen as really bad form to call yourself a caliph if one already existed. But in the early 10th century, a momentous event happened that changed the game. During Abdullahman's reign, the Abbasid realm slid ever deeper into chaos with civil wars and rebellions destroying the fabric of the caliphate, leading to the effective loss of power of the caliphs, which of course made their claims of being the leaders of the entire Muslim world a complete farce, and everyone knew it. And you better believe that Cordoba was very well informed about these events. But this wasn't the only catalyst for the new title claim. About three years before his ascension, in 909, a faction called the Fatimids, who claimed descent from the Umayyad's arch-rival, Ali bin Abi Talib, 
cousin, and son-in-law to the prophet, had captured Tunisia and proclaimed themselves as the new legitimate caliphs. So, hmm, I guess there can be more than one caliph at a time. And if those guys can claim the title, then I certainly can, right? But this matter was being made increasingly pressing due to the growing sphere of influence of the Fatimids in northwest Africa, which meant they were encroaching on the backyard of the Umayyads. So one of the ways to counter this expansion was to have an equally powerful and prestigious title. Given all these reasons and circumstances, in 929, during the formal Friday sermon in the mosque, Abdullah III, was conferred in his name as commander of the faithful by the presiding judge. Official dispatches were sent to all the provinces proclaiming his new title. The new caliph also ordered gold dinars to be minted for the first time in two centuries. This man was projecting power and authority in every way possible, and gold coins were a hell of a flex. To put it in perspective, it would be another 300 years before any northern European monarch minted gold coins. But taking on the mantle of commander of the faithful was not an end unto itself. It was but one more piece of the puzzle for Abdullahman's future ambitions. Having the title of caliph conferred a whole new aura of legitimacy and authority to his rule. An authority that he was determined to extend into areas that were traditionally beyond the direct control of Cordoba. It was now time to correct that. His first objective was the city of Madida, which was under the control of the Berber leader Masud bin Tajit. The caliph dispatched a military force to the city, which persuaded Masud that his only real option was to come to terms. And the terms were quite generous. Masud and his family were relocated to Cordoba with a comfortable pension, and the citizens of Merida were guaranteed freedom from extra taxes and security for their property. A new governor was installed in the city, who was a member of the Umayyad family, along with a garrison of 3,000 soldiers. His next target was Badajoz, still ruled by the descendants of Ibn Marwan. Right after taking his new title, the caliph personally led an expedition against it. As per usual, a carefully laid out siege encircled by the Hoz. But local resistance was fierce and protracted. Not wanting to waste more of his time, the caliph left a trusted commander in charge of the city while he moved on to his next objective, the future Portuguese city of Beja. The local leader, did what all the former independent rulers did. He submitted to the caliph. He and his family were relocated to Cordoba, where he and his warriors were officially enrolled in the army. The caliph made sure that the people's concerns and grievances were addressed, and a governor was appointed. The caliph also went on to receive the submission of the future Portuguese city of Faro. The following year, the deputy he had left in charge of the siege of Badajoz negotiated the surrender of the city. Once again, the caliph followed a policy of mercy. The rebel leader, Abdallah bin Muhammad, and his men were relocated with honor to Cordoba, and Badajoz was assigned a governor and garrisoned with troops. 
ever the restless leader, as soon as Badajoz had been brought to heel, the caliph next swiveled his sights on Toledo. Even though the local ruler had sworn his loyalty to the caliph during the campaign of 920, Abdelrahman was tired of Toledo's constant pushes for independence and their disrespect for the authority of Cordoba. So, in the spring of 930, an Umayyad general led the forces of Cordoba north and established a permanent siege camp overlooking the city. The hardy Toledans did not give up easy and steadfastly held on to their ancient independence for two whole years. Until, in the summer of 932, famine drove them to submit to the caliph. There is no evidence of any reprisals against the population for their resistance. The city was assigned a governor and a particularly large garrison, for obvious reasons. For his next trick, the caliph came up with arguably his most difficult goal yet, to bring all the frontier lords of the upper march under his direct control. A tall order indeed. At this point, the Benudil Noon controlled the mountains around Santanved, Ucles, and Wet. To the north, the Tujibis controlled Zaragoza, Calatayud, and Taroka, along with many other areas around the Ebro Valley. In 930, Hashim al-Tujibi of Zaragoza died and was succeeded by his son Muhammad, who became the leader of the family. The caliph used the opportunity that the change in leadership offered to make his demands, which were relatively modest. He demanded that they participate in raids against the Christian kingdoms. And this was a clever move, because by acquiescing to this, it effectively acknowledged his status as essentially supreme leader of the Muslim community, further boosting his claim as commander of the faithful. Furthermore, it barred the frontier lords from making those irritating alliances with the Christian powers, and it also required that the lords pay a tribute to the caliph. This agreement held for about two years, but in 933, the Tujibi absolutely refused to join the caliph in a campaign against the city of Osma in Castile, which turned out to be smart on their part because that campaign was an abject failure. Understandably angry at the Tujibi for going back on their word, Abdelrahman launched a punitive expedition against the defiant lords of Zaragoza in the summer of 935, and subsequently failed to take the city. And then, all hell broke loose, as a general insurrection erupted not only among the lords of the Upper March, but the Benudil Noon in the south as well. It's also at this time that a member of the Umayyad family, a guy named Ahmad bin Ishaq al-Qurashi, initiated a coup to overthrow the caliph. This forced Abdelrahman to turn back south to deal with the insurrection. Now, we don't know if all of these concurrent rebellions and the coup were somehow connected. It's possible, but it's also possible that Ahmad just figured that his best chance to overthrow the caliph had presented itself and jumped on the opportunity. But he was mistaken about that, as his attempted coup was just that, an attempt. And it was a failed attempt, and he paid for it with his life, as he was executed in 936. 
Once this particular insurrection was dealt with, the caliph once again had the breathing space to sort out the frontier lords. He sent a military expedition in 937 to Zaragoza, this time led by a slave soldier named Dudi and backed up by Christian troops from Alva. This joint Christian-Muslim force was too powerful an argument to resist, so Muhammad al-Tujibi had no choice but to come to the negotiating table. Remarkably, even after this capitulation, the terms of submission were quite lenient. Muhammad had to surrender the city to the caliph's forces and go to Cordoba. But unlike previous treaties, his stay in the capital was for a limited time only. Once he was allowed to return to Zaragoza, he was to be governor for life, in exchange for an oath of allegiance, tribute, and a pinky promise not to make any side deals or alliances with the Christians. The caliph then made similar agreements with the other frontier lords of the Upper March. These treaties were, in effect, an acknowledgement that he could not achieve the same level of control over the lands of the Benudil Nun and the Ebro Valley as he had with Badajoz and Toledo. I'm sure that was a hard pill to swallow. The caliph decided it was time to pay a visit to the Western Christians. So he launched an expedition to Leon, which was being ruled at the time by Khamiru II. The caliph's forces departed via Toledo, where the Tujibi, the Benu Shabrit, and the Benu Nun leaders joined the army as specified in their new treaty obligations with Cordoba. They headed north across the mountains where they gradually began to encounter Christian troops. In one of these skirmishes, Muhammad bin Hashim al-Tujibi the newly reinstated ruler of Zaragoza was captured. The army then besieged the city of Simancas, but this siege went nowhere and troop morale began to plummet. So the army lifted the siege and moved on up the Douro. They then turned south into the mountainous territory to suppress local guerrilla activity. At some point, the army was caught in broken terrain at an unidentified place. And here, they were completely wrecked. This was total defeat. The caliph and the shattered remnants of his army had no choice but to escape over the hills to Guadalajara. One of the likely causes of this defeat seems to have been the deep divisions within the Muslim army. You see, most of the frontier lords, most notably Fortun bin Muhammad of Huesca, were really angry at the terms that they were basically forced to agree to, terms that bound them to serve in the army. And in a seriously tone-deaf move, the caliph gave command of the whole army to one of his Slavic slave soldiers, a guy named Naja. As you can imagine, not only did this not sit well with the frontier lords, but it also infuriated the nobility of the inner territories of Al-Andalus. Apparently, right at the height of the battle, Fortun and Naja are said to have begun arguing and trading insults. And this was the catalyst that began the panicked rout of the army. There are also allegations that the old established noble Arab families of the south were getting paranoid that they were being replaced by the new professional slave soldiers and commanders. So their support for the campaign was weak, and their heart wasn't in the fight. 
In the immediate aftermath of the defeat, the Caliph was determined to find someone to blame for this catastrophe. So he executed Fortune along with ten of his retainers. But once the dust settled and faces had been saved, it appears that the Caliph took a realistic view of the situation. And the disastrous defeat seems to have put him off of future adventurism, and he never went back to the north again. After all this trouble, and the obvious mood of resentment of the frontier lords, they were allowed to return to the previous state of independence in exchange for the usual terms of defending the Muslims against the Christians. Muhammad al-Tujibi was eventually ransomed by the caliph and restored to his governorship in Zaragoza. And surprisingly, even the Benu Shabrit were allowed to continue as lords of Huesca, despite Fortun's treachery. Toledo and the Middle March, on the other hand, were, for the most part, still ruled and defended directly by men appointed by Córdoba. One of the most significant actions taken by the caliph at this period was not a military expedition, but the recolonization and refortification of the municipality of Medinaceli, which significantly strengthened the frontier of the Upper March. We will now turn our attention south for a bit, where the caliph began the first sustained involvement by the Umayyads in North Africa. At this point, when compared to Al-Andalus, Morocco was quite underdeveloped. There had barely been any Arab settlement, and for the most part, the population was majority Berber and rural. Here, tribal structures remained the main political unit with the expected rivalries and small confederations. The city of Fez was just about the only place in Morocco that had a real urban community. The only other comparable urban centers were the oasis trade town of Sijil Masa and the small city-state of Nakur. Sijil Masa is located far to the south on the northern edge of the Sahara Desert and was ruled by the Midradids, a Berber dynasty of the Khadijid sect of Islam. Nakur was located on the Mediterranean coast and was ruled by the Benu Sali, who were allies of Al-Andalus. Now, on paper, what is now Morocco was under the authority of the Idrisids, who were based in Fez. The Idrisids were the descendants of Ali, who fled west after a failed rebellion against the Abbasid Caliphate. But notice that I said that they had authority in this area, not control. Due to their illustrious ancestor, the Idrisids naturally commanded authority, prestige, and an elevated religious status. So their role was more of respected mediators rather than rulers. But whatever unity they had enjoyed, by the 10th century, the Idrisid family split into smaller factions that all vied for supremacy, and of course, that only weakened the family name. Relations between Al-Andalus and North Africa had for a long time been pretty low-key and uneventful. Besides personal and commercial activities between the two, there was never a serious unified threat from North Africa to worry about, nor was it prosperous enough to be a target for invasion. But all of this changed when a major political revolution took place in 909. 
The existing powers in Tunisia and Algeria were overrun by the Fatimids and their Berber allies. The Fatimid dynasty claimed to be descendants of the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, hence their name. And they held the ambition of conquering the whole Muslim world. And after taking control of central North Africa, they also began projecting their naval power in that part of the Mediterranean. All of this started hitting close to home for Abdalahman, when in 917, the Fatimids attacked the Umayyads' allies at Nakur. But the caliph sent aid to his allies and they retook the city. But this wasn't over. As in 922, the Fatimids sacked Sijilmasa and Fez. The Idrisids were kicked out and a new pro-Fatimid Berber ruler was installed. In response to all this, the Umayyads fortified the southern coast of Al-Andalus and established bases on the North African coast, taking the cities of Melilla, Ceuta, and Tangier. And it's interesting to note that modern-day Spain also holds the cities of Melilla and Ceuta as strategic outposts. The caliph's strategy was to maintain a network of alliances in Morocco to prevent Fatimid aggression towards Al-Andalus. And despite the wild success of the Fatimids in conquering Egypt and subduing Morocco, Cordoba still managed to maintain their outposts on Tangier and Ceuta. So overall, his defensive strategy worked quite well, and the network of alliances he established will be used to great effect by his son and successor, Al-Hakam. The prestige of the Umayyad Caliphate spread far and wide as evidenced by the extensive diplomatic contacts it had with distant powers. For example, in 950, there were several diplomatic exchanges with the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto I. Cordoba also established diplomatic ties with the Byzantine Empire, and in 849, diplomats from Constantinople were received in Cordoba. Later that same year, a delegation from Al-Andalus was welcomed to Byzantium. Although both the caliph and the emperor Theophilus considered the Fatimids as their enemy, these diplomatic exchanges never amounted to anything like a political or military alliance. Instead, these interactions focused on cultural and intellectual exchanges between the two powers as a way to show off to one another. For example, Byzantine mosaicists were sent to Cordoba to create works of art. And in 951, a Greek monk called Nicholas was dispatched to Cordoba to work on a text of Diosocrates, since, apparently, no one in Al-Andalus knew the Greek language at this time. Besides this being an exercise in cultural exchange, it also served a political purpose. Back in the East, the caliphs of Baghdad and the emperors of Constantinople were traditional rivals that were recognized to be on the same cultural level. So, it's clear that the new caliph in the West felt that this type of diplomacy with the Byzantines was only befitting someone of his stature. And as someone of such stature, it was only fitting that the caliph lived and ruled in rich and luxurious accommodations. In November of 936, he began work on a new palace-slash-city about five kilometers or three miles northwest of Cordoba. Remains of this palace still survive today. There was a grand hall 
and surrounding it were pools, gardens, a mosque, and luxury apartments. All of these factors certainly highlight that this was a highly developed and ordered court culture. There certainly was nothing like it in Western Europe at this point, and we would probably have to go all the way to Constantinople or Baghdad to find anything comparable to it. Since his great defeat in the north in 939, it seems like the Caliph rarely left Cordoba and its surrounding areas. As I mentioned last episode, the great historical work of Ibn Hayyan, which is the principal source of information on his reign, breaks off in 941. So, our sources for the last two decades of Abdelrahman's life are quite poor. But the information we do have leads us to believe that he retained absolute authority while delegating trusted agents to pursue his policies on the Christian frontier and in North Africa. On the 15th of October, 961, the Caliph Abdelrahman III died. He was 70 years old and had ruled Al-Andalus for 49 years. He was buried with his predecessors in the Alcazar of Córdoba. The reign of Abdelrahman has come to symbolize the pinnacle of the Umayyads of Al-Andalus. By all the metrics of the time, he not only hit the high benchmark set by his great-grandfather, Abdelrahman II, but exceeded it by extending the power of Córdoba beyond its traditional areas of influence, both in the Upper March and in North Africa. I had to skip a lot of the listed cultural achievements of his reign, but he was a prolific builder and patron of the arts. He expanded the city's library and made Córdoba the leading intellectual center of Western Europe. And his successor will continue his father's legacy and maintain the caliphate's position on the world stage. Next episode, we will be taking a break from the central narrative to take a look at Christian life under Muslim rule in Al-Andalus. And if we're lucky, maybe even answer the question conflict or coexistence. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 